you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From the Moment Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez, are more vaccines the key to opening up California? We'll hear how COVID is in the middle of a politics and science tug-of-war. Plus, the coolest cat in Hollywood is literally a cat. P-22, the mountain lion bachelor that roams through Griffith Park. He's around 12 years old now, which makes him a senior citizen, and he just got a checkup. Find out how P-22's doing ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I mean, Martinez, thanks for being with us today. All right, we're going to kick things off right away with State of Affairs. That's our weekly peek at politics in the Golden State. California is again making a new plan to get people vaccinated in an equitable way, and many in the state are hoping that some relief is coming soon through the latest federal stimulus package. To discuss it all, we have John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times, and also with us, Rafe Sonnenshine, Executive Director of the Pat Brown Institute. Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State Los Angeles. John Rafe, welcome back. Good to be with you. All right, let's talk first uh, about vaccines, because uh, despite President Biden's pledge that there will be enough vaccines for every American by the end of May, the process of getting a vaccine in California has been uh, really frustrating for uh, those who want one. So, John, tell us about this new plan by the state to direct vaccines to certain specific communities. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the you know the first thing I would say is that the state uh, announced just earlier today that they've hit the 10 million mark in terms of vaccinations that have been given to Californians. That's certainly good news. Of course, we wanted to go faster than that. There has been a lot of concern over which communities are getting the vaccines and the sense that that we don't really have diverse communities, communities of color, getting the vaccinations at the rate they need to get them. So, you know, the administration has this earmarking plan. Oh, hey, John, hold on one second. Hey, Rafe, I think you, I think we have a little bit of an issue with your connection. Are you there, Rafe? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay, we got you. We got you. We just heard some, some loud that. rustling in the background. We thought maybe okay. something was amiss. Uh, John, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Tell us about the direct uh, vaccines to certain communities. Yeah, so so we're earmarking vaccines to, uh, to more disadvantaged communities, low-income communities, communities of color across California with this idea that if you can vaccinate those communities at a higher rate, you can move the state through this reopening process a little bit faster, which everyone has been focused on this week. Of course, we've been talking about schools a lot in that. I think the devil's in the details. It's going to take some time to get this done. And I do think, you know, A, the other question here is, is this a an improvement of yeah. the state's vaccination policy or is this a reworking of it? If it's an improvement, everybody's going to be happy. If it's a reworking, there's going to be political and policy frustration all across California. Well, I'm glad you said the word reworking, John, because, you know, I remember way back in October, the state instituted uh, the so-called equity metric where it required counties to bring down positivity rates in low-income communities if they wanted to reopen. So if those expectations were already set, then why did the state need to change up the plan for vaccine rollout? Shouldn't that have been the plan the whole way down? the road? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that those are all good questions. And I think that there have been a lot of questions in the last few months over those equity efforts and whether or not they have been successful enough. I think largely, though, hey, what we're seeing with a lot of the vaccination changes is the simple fact that more fluent communities have had access to vaccines at a higher rate. Either they've been able to navigate the online uh, appointment system 
or they have found ways to get that. The governor's told those anecdotes. We've reported them at the, at the LA Times with a story about access codes that are being used by the wrong communities. And I think this is a more concerted effort to look back at what has not worked at reaching out to the communities that need this the most. And, and yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we're gonna be measured by uh, California's diversity really being represented in combating the virus and dealing with the vaccinations. And right now we are struggling with that. Rafe Sunshine, um, L.A. has been in the purple tier from the very beginning. Uh, L.A. has not moved out of that purple tier. It is the most restrictive tier in terms of uh, rates of positivity. Um, you know, I'm wondering about the political wisdom in trying to reopen still while we're in the purple tier and seemingly when all of the stats and numbers around what being in a tier means seems to be shifting. Well, you know, I don't think the public health people enjoy being Cassandra and being the bearers of bad news because everybody wants to reopen. Haven't we gone through this now two or three times where we feel better and then we reopen too fast and then we have to start all over again? I think the public affairs health people are saying, please, please slow down. Don't open everything so quickly. But I think everybody wants to get the schools open. I think that's an area of consensus. But do people really need to have indoor dining and every indoor thing and throw away your mask and who cares. I, I think that's going to be a, a message that won't work and that will come to regret. One of the things, Rafe, that I always heard, um, especially when it comes to Dr. Fauci, whenever he would say something and then politicians would say, okay, well, that's what the medical guys say. That's what the scientists say. The politicians have to try and interpret that onto a wider kind of a wider audience of people that affects more things. So when it comes to reopening now, does it feel more political than scientific? Well, it's always been political. There's always been tremendous pressure to reopen. I think at least they're focusing on the schools, which I think is the most important thing to get going. They're not going crazy. They're not opening like Texas is opening and just say, do whatever you want from now on. I think they're being pretty careful. But science is pretty darn important here. Eh? You know, it's not just some some cornered sector that's apolitical. It's about keeping us alive. So I think they've got to find a reasonable middle ground. And then, John, now we got to think, too, about the recall effort uh, against uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, which is picking up steam little by little, uh, still has uh, a little bit ways to go before they get to the March 17th uh, deadline for all their required signatures. But how serious is that looking right now, John? I think it's very serious. I mean, you know, and to the point of the conversation we're having, I mean, this is the intersection of politics and public policy here. Um, I mean, California being such a diverse state and everybody having different expectations about what we should be doing leaves open the door for people who think that they want to take another look at this governor and they're angry. And the governor is the guy where they think the buck stops. Um, this effort is serious. I think this effort, I think if you talk to most people who watch California politics, they will tell you this effort is likely to qualify. It is likely to get on the ballot. Having an election and recalling the governor are two different things. Uh, we're going to see signatures from the pro recall camp um, as soon as next week. They tell us they've got enough. We don't we haven't seen all of those yet. But if you look at the the rate of validity of their signatures, you got to remember the county elections yeah. officers review these signatures to make sure they were signed. Uh, these petitions were signed by valid voters. Their validity rate is awfully good. And if that holds, I think this election happens. I think the recall qualifies. And if the recall qualifies, uh, Rafe, uh, if, if we say are at a are at the end of this dark tunnel, or at least the light is coming into our dark tunnel that we're in right now, will anyone care? Will will the recall, it, it'll say, say it still happens, but will anyone care about it as much as maybe they do right now? 
Well, let me tell you this, Abe, by the time this happens in September or October, we're going to be into the congressional elections and we're going to be rerunning the Biden-Trump election of last year. And my guess is if Democrats hold behind the governor, he will not lose that election. I actually think that uh, Cuomo is in more trouble in New York than Newsom here. But if the election were held today, there's a half decent chance this would be a very competitive recall. But I think people are going to be feeling quite a bit different in September and October, and they probably won't be looking for who to blame because the situation may be considerably better. So I'm going to Rafe Sonnenshine, Executive Director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State Los Angeles. Also with us, John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Now, in uh, Washington, D.C., the push uh, for President Biden's stimulus bill is slowly making its way through Congress. Uh, John, can you give us uh, the headlines for what might be headed to California and uh, Californians' own wallets out of that bill? Well, I mean, first and foremost, there is more uh, financial assistance for Californians for um, for all but the most wealthy Californians. And I think most people would agree that uh, the wealthy Californians are the ones who don't need the stimulus checks. That money looks to be coming down the pike. I think just as importantly, though, is money for schools. We have additional money to to, you know, mitigate some of these challenges of, of bringing kids back from campus and the costs of that. And also money for local and state governments, uh, city and uh, local and county governments, in particular in California, hard hit by paying all of these costs of uh, pandemic related expenses in response to the pandemic. And there's a lot of money uh, for that. But, you know, the wrangling has been fascinating to watch at this long distance in Washington and whether the president's able to push his party through to get to, uh, you know, to get what he wants and to convince Americans that they need this. But certainly it's going to be welcome news for a lot of Californians. And Rafe, let's get into that wrangling that John was just talking about, because there's been a lot of back and forth with the bill. It seems like uh, Democrats are negotiating with other Democrats in addition to talking to their Republican colleagues. Can you recap for us what these talks are looking like? Yeah, I think the Democrats in Washington are finally figuring out politics for the first time in about 20 years, which said if you hold your party, when you have enough votes to win with your party, you don't need to spend your time chasing people who aren't going to vote for your plan anyway in the long run, which is the situation President Obama was in. They have made some final agreements with Senate moderates that appear to make people pretty pleased right now because they've added a new position, a new provision that will release people from tax burdens from unemployment received in 2020, which was something that was about to sneak up on people in return. They did extend the unemployment uh, through the end of August, but cut the amount from 400 to 300, and that gives the moderates, although it's going to make progressives very unhappy. I think the House is going to be happy with it. I think they may pass it as early as tomorrow and mm. get it back over to the House, and by next week, they could beat their deadline of March 14th uh, when unemployment uh, expires of the previous round. So. I think they may have pulled this off. And I'm here to tell you, this is the most popular piece of legislation to come out of Washington in about 20 years. The only people it's not popular with are Senate Republicans. And you have to ask yourself, if they all vote against it, as House Republicans did, they're voting against the most popular bill in current times. Yeah, And, you know, on that, Rafe, because I've been talking about this for a few months now, the future of the GOP. What is that going to look like post-Trump presidency, even though uh, last week it's, uh, it seemed like he was uh, sh displaying that he still has a firm grip on the party down in Florida. But have they shown a pretty unified front in Congress so far? I think they have no choice. It doesn't matter quite what they think. They're concerned about their next primary, and we're coming up on congressional elections and a bunch of Senate races. And this is still Donald Trump's party. And I think they're going to unite against uh, the Biden agenda, which I think may be a big mistake because 
this is more popular than the Affordable Care Act was uh, when it was put through by Barack Obama on pretty much a party line vote. So I think they're going to find themselves in the spot they've been all along with Donald Trump. They can't live with him and they can't live without him. All right. Finally, let's wrap on this uh, local story. The L.A. City Council passed an $88 million plan to invest in communities of color. We talked yesterday with one council member, uh, Kern Price, who said that uh, this is just a first step of many, possibly. Uh, But, John, walk us through some of the big ticket items of where that money could possibly go. Uh, boy, I hope I can defer to you, to your, uh, to, to Rafe as well on this because I, I don't have as good of a view of it in Sacramento. I think though that clearly this pandemic has shown those communities really need that assistance. And uh, whether this is uh, enough, I think that remains to be seen. But I apologize, I don't have the numbers in front of me about what's going on there. No, absolutely, Rafe. I mean, it seems like this is a long time coming. What stands out to you as the most important step here? And are you hopeful that this will bring some some real change for communities uh, in Los Angeles? Yeah, I think the problem is that the mayor promised some time ago after after a lot of the protests that significant money would go toward the african-american community in la then they came up with a plan and it had to do with moving resources around in the city government and the mayor complained that the city council was putting it into regular projects in their districts so he vetoed the ordinance then the council overrode the veto but almost immediately passed what appears to be a compromise plan to more target it toward the african-american community including a pretty innovative project in current prices district uh, about guaranteed payments which was uh, first tested out in stockton california so i think what they're trying to do is figure out how not just to have it be regular city projects of services but to really target the african-american community i don't think they're quite there yet but i think that's what they're trying to do and i think in their own way, the mayor and council are finding their way to that. And Rafe, I asked uh, uh, Council Member Price, you know, because he called it a down payment. He said this is a down payment. And I told him, you know, when I make a down payment on something, that means I'm promising to pay more stuff down the road uh, later. Uh, and, and he couldn't quite commit to that. Uh, if this is the only step and it's not a down payment and it's just a, a first step of only one, uh, how significant is it then? Well, down payments are always significant if you follow up, but the real thing you have to figure out is what will have an impact in the African-American community, and it can't be business as usual. So just moving things around uh, to favorite projects won't get it done, so you need an analysis of where it can really matter. You've got a huge homelessness problem in the African-American community and a huge problem of people who may be on the verge of homelessness in the African-American community. People are going to be having to deal with the rent that comes due after all the uh, breaks and slowdowns and rent payments go away. So that's what you've got to start with. The data is out there and the mayor and council will need to step up going forward. That's Rafe Sonnenschein, executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State Los Angeles. Also with us, John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Rafe, John, thanks a lot. Thanks. Pleasure you. to be here. We've been hearing from school districts all around Los Angeles to hear about their reopening plans and how they're going. Now, we started uh, down by the shore with Palos Verdes Peninsula, then moved north to check in on Compton. Now we're going to find out how my granddaughter's school district is going and doing. Glendale Unified, they're up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. Last month, Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon received an unusual proposal from Sheriff Alex Villanueva. The sheriff wanted to create a special joint task force to fight government corruption and also target dirty politicians. Gascon said no thank you. For a closer look at why this was an unusual proposal and why the DA shot it down, we turn now to KPCC's Frank Stoltz. So, Frank, uh, why did the DA turn the sheriff down? Seems like uh, fighting public corruption is a good idea, right? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, But the DA's spokesman, Alex Bastian, said autonomy on such investigations is important. Public integrity is something the district attorney takes very seriously. And what we don't want to do is we do not want to compromise our ability to engage in that work in an independent manner. He also said the DA has a lot of expertise in the area since it already has its own unit dedicated to corruption cases. I talked to Loyola Law School professor and former federal prosecutor Lori Levinson, who said the DA usually takes the lead on highly sensitive public corruption cases. You know, it seems like our sheriff also wants to play the role of DA. And usually these task forces come more organically where law enforcement talks to the prosecutors and then the prosecutors help coordinate an appropriate task force. A, the sheriff did not respond to our request for comment on why he proposed the task force in the first place. Yeah, Frank, it still seems like there's more going on here. I mean, a task force is not a particularly radical idea, right? You know there's always something more going on. Of course, of course. Uh, (laughs) It's L.A. It's L.A. politics and law enforcement. Boy, uh, that's an interesting intersection always. There's... In this case, there there are two other potentially relevant facts here. The first is within days of the DA turning the sheriff down, Villanueva endorsed a recall of Gascon, citing his efforts to seek shorter prison sentences to address mass incarceration. It is unclear if that was connected to the DA's rejection. Just a guess, just a guess, Frank. (laughs) Maybe. Well, you know, (laughs) we have not heard from the sheriff. uh, Yeah, I know. Fairness. But there's, uh, uh, you know, something else perhaps even more interesting uh, that is going on here, and that is that the sheriff has opened his own corruption investigations into three people who either now or uh, once were watchdogs. Now, Frank, who is he investigating? Well, uh, one is a member of the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission, who was among the most vocal critics calling for Villanueva's resignation. The sheriff says the department is looking into potentially improper contracts between her nonprofit group and Metro. Another is the county's inspector general, whose audits and reports have been sharply critical of the sheriff's department. Villanueva has uh, accused him of illegally accessing confidential sheriff's personnel files. And the third A is a top aide to former Sheriff Jim McDonald, who was involved in efforts to strengthen discipline policies, a person the sheriff has angrily accused of unfairly targeting good deputies. He says he's looking into whether she improperly Mm. um, distributed confidential personnel files. Well, so, okay, so if he's investigating people who oversee his own department, I mean, that seems like a potential conflict of interest. Yeah, uh, and that's true. And we asked the sheriff about that recently. He said he's shielded himself from the investigations. And I've recused myself from the entire operation. All the decisions are being made uh, through the undersheriff's office. 
But the Civilian Commission oversees the entire department, not just you. No, that is true. But remember, they're, they're an advisory body only. You know, A, it's unclear why the department should be free to investigate its own civilian oversight commission just because it's advisory. And I should point out that the commission now has subpoena power, something the sheriff fought against. He always loves to call him an advisory body only. He, he says it over and over. Um, <laughs> Frank, so tying all this together, are you suggesting the sheriff's willingness to open criminal investigations into his own watchdogs would make him maybe a bad partner for the DA in corruption investigations? Well, again, we don't know if that played into uh, these decisions, but we do know that even former high-ranking members of the Sheriff's Department think Villanueva has overstepped his bounds. One former top official called the investigations improper. I also talked to Rod Cush, who once headed the elite Internal Criminal Investigations Bureau. He also faulted the sheriff. You just don't want to have a situation that... Um, makes you appear as if you have an agenda toward any particular entity. The idea is to have a completely unbiased investigation. Uh, these are ongoing investigations, A, two of them for nearly two years. Two of the targets of these investigations have said they think they're bogus and that the sheriff is just trying to intimidate watchdogs. The sheriff has denied that. He said the state constitution allows him to investigate any and all crimes he sees fit. That's KPCC's criminal justice correspondent, Frank Stoltz. Frank, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ed. All right, moving on. School districts all over Los Angeles County are gearing up to have students back in the classroom, and some have already begun in-person instruction. Today we're going to hear from Glendale Unified School District, which serves 26,000 students. District administrators have proposed March 23rd as the first day teachers can return to their classrooms, with students grades K through 2 returning March 29th and grades 3 through 6 returning in April, in early April. But the Glendale Teachers Association says that date is too early to guarantee the staff's safety and has proposed an April 19th start date instead. Glendale Superintendent Vivian Etchian joined us earlier today to address the issues the union has brought up, starting with vaccinations. So in conversation with our educators in our school sites, of course, the importance of offering vaccinations was front and center. So we worked with our local hospitals and the city of Glendale, and I'm here to share and celebrate with all of you that every employee in our school district who wanted a vaccination has been offered an appointment, which increases our comfort level as we care for our educators and all of our employees, that this will be an opportunity for them to receive the first shot. And if they choose to be vaccinated, of course, the second shot will then happen the week of the 22nd. So by the time the students come back, they will have completed both shots. Okay. The Glendale Teachers Association proposed a return date of April 19th, saying that uh, any earlier wouldn't be enough time to work out safety protocols. Uh, This is uh, Chris Davis, vice president of the Glendale Teachers Association. A start date in the middle of April will ensure that all teachers will have had the opportunity to be fully vaccinated and will be in line with the start dates of many other large urban school districts, including Los Angeles and San Diego. So it sounds like there's a little bit of a a discrepancy between your date and their date. What have negotiations been like so far with the union? 
So I'm still cautiously optimistic that we can come up with a date that serves our students and communities well, which are the dates that we have proposed. I don't think we should compare ourselves to other school districts because obviously Pasadena is starting on the 29th of March, Long Beach is starting on the 29th of March, and many other neighboring school districts already have begun. With the safety measures we've taken in our school sites, over $20 million of investments, we believe that our schools are safe, both for our children that will be attending and also our employees who will be working there. And many of our employees have already been in our schools and they have not experienced any kind of a concern. The date of April is not in line with the needs of our communities and our parents as we have conducted a commitment survey, and we know that 75% of our parents actually responded. And of the 75%, uh, 61% indicated that they wanted to have their students at least for two days a week experience school in person. As a community, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. Mm. So we have families that are doing incredibly well and their students who wish to continue in a virtual environment certainly will be welcome to do so. And then we have situations in families where the learning, particularly for our youngest students, is incredibly challenged in households with multiple children, intergenerational families. And uh, we have 55% of our students living in poverty. So with that in mind, one size does not fit all. And we know many of our youngest students, TK and K, Their first learning in a virtual setting for as long as it has taken has not been the best learning experience, and we have to change that. Now, the Glendale Teachers Association also had concerns about the district's safety protocols. For instance, they want mandatory testing of adults instead of a voluntary program, and they also want evidence rather than assurances that school facilities are safe. Uh, What is the district doing to build trust with teachers and staff on, on these issues? So I have invited Mr. Davis, and he joined me several weeks ago to one of our school site visits. We have offered safety validation visits. Just yesterday, I was with my superintendent's parent group and the PTA leaders. We have invited any parent leader who would like to participate or teacher leader who would like to be a part of this process to safely tour a school and be able to see firsthand Beyond the handbook or the videos we've prepared, they're welcome to come to the school site and see what has been done and the changes that have been, the resources we've invested in our schools, whether it's changes for air filtration, hand washing stations, physically distanced desks, PPE devices. We would not want to open up a school district if we didn't think we were ready. I don't want to leave the impression that we don't have teachers already teaching from their classrooms. We have never been a school district that really closed. We've had our technology pods in all of our elementary schools where we have uh, offered childcare to parents who needed it, whether they were essential workers or for another reason. Uh, homeless or foster and needed that additional support. So these investments have been made and we are ready and I invite you to come and visit as well. 
We're talking to Glendale Unified School District Superintendent Vivian Ekjian about the district's reopening plans and their negotiations with the Glendale Teachers Association. Now, like a lot of schools, Glendale Unified is preparing to institute a hybrid learning model, which is a mix of in-person and distance learning. Uh, but Chris Davis of the Glendale Teachers Union echoed comments from teachers around the U.S. who have talked about how hard it is to do both and is worried that his colleagues uh, won't get enough support in instituting this model. Let's listen to uh, Chris Davis one more time. And in a time like this, a school district should be helping its teachers transition into this new instructional model, rather than telling teachers that if they need more time to figure this all out, they'll need to use their spring break or Saturdays to do so. Superintendent, what's your response there? What support can a district give teachers in light of these concerns? We have offered five paid additional days in preparation for return to school and concurrent teaching. We also have created videos that are available for teachers to use in their own time as if they wish. With the first week of returning, the 22nd is a professional day. And we also have added five days without students in the classroom for those who want to become more familiar with the tools. And we have a school right now that is open, Mann Elementary, where teachers are teaching from their classrooms and um, certainly can share their experiences and the evidence that it can be done. If, say, there is no movement with the union um, and it just looks like no one seems to be budging, will you be able to force teachers to come back into class on the dates that uh, that you'd like to have things opened up by? I'm encouraged by the fact that as I visit our educators in their classroom in a virtual setting, that they're incredibly dedicated individuals and that they are working right now with their site principals in preparation for this to occur. Uh, I don't see the word forced as one that is um, appropriate in this setting for me to use. We will continue to negotiate. We will come up with strategies to support our educators. And I truly believe that it can be done. And I know that our community and students are in dire need of support and should have choices. That's Vivian Ekjian, superintendent of the Glendale Unified School District on the district's reopening plans. Superintendent, thank you very much. My pleasure. Coolest cat in Hollywood is uh, literally a cat. P-22, the mountain lion bachelor roaming through Griffith Park. He's around 12 years old now, which makes him a senior citizen, and he just got a checkup. Find out how the old cat's doing next on Take Two. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you find your podcast, Sammy Martinez. LA's own P-22 is the world's most famous mountain lion. He's known for making this seemingly impossible 50-mile trek from the Santa Monica Mountains all the way to Griffith Park. He crossed both the 101 and the 405 freeways to get there, a feat many fellow mountain lions just don't survive. Local wildlife specialists have been keeping tabs on P-22 since his great migration in 2012, and just a few weeks ago, they got another chance to check him out. One of the biologists who handled the big cat was Jeff Sickich with the National Park Service's Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. Jeff, welcome to Take Two. 
Hi, thank you for having me. You got uh, an up-close and personal look at him recently, in part to replace his GPS collar. Uh, tell us what he looked like, and actually tell us how those trackers work and what information you uh, learn from them. Yeah, so the reason we capture these animals is to place a GPS radio collar on them. And these collars give us great information. Um, they take up to eight locations a day. We can look at that information online daily. So we can learn a lot from this data we get, you know, habitat use, landscape use, where are these cats going? Are they crossing roads, um, freeways? What is their diet? So if they kill and eat something, we'll see a cluster of points. We'll hike into those areas to identify what they killed and ate. We can see when they're hanging out with another lion, either fighting or mating. We can go to the dens of lions. And so the radio collars last for around two years, roughly, at which point right before that battery fails, we'll attempt to go out and recapture the animals to place a new collar on them. But yeah, he's roughly around 11 or 12 years old now. He looked good for an old cat. 11, 12 is old for a wild mountain lion. But yeah, from as much as we can tell from the workup we give these animals for that hour we have them in our hands, he appeared healthy and fine. So is it surprising that he's as old as he is, 11, 12 years old, considering that he's been alone pretty much most of the time, at least that we know of, and considering how dangerous his environment can be? Yeah, it is surprising that he's still in the park. And it doesn't surprise me, I guess, that he's this old because there's no competition for him. There's no other males challenging him right now. But, you know, he seems to be finding, you know, enough prey there. That's the amazing thing. You know, he's in this area, nine square miles, and we've hiked in on his kills. And it's similar to lions we've studied everywhere else. 88% of his diet is mule deer, followed by coyotes and raccoons. And he's staying elusive, basically out of sight of people. Griffith Park gets, I think, around 10 million visitors or something crazy like that a year. And I can count on, you know, basically one hand the number of confirmed sightings of him. Even when we're out there tracking him, he has a collar, we have an antenna. I know he's 15 meters in front of me and <laughs> we never, you know, we never see these cats. We're talking with biologist Jeff Sickich about P-22, the mountain lion of Griffith Park. Have you noticed any changes in P-22 over the years? Has his fur changed over time or are there any other signs of age? You know, being an older cat at 11 or 12, um, once you have them in hand, you can tell that they're older, mainly by the teeth wear. But yeah, his fur looks good. He'll have more white speckles. You know, these older cats will get these white speckles above their shoulders and that's pretty much from tick bites through the years and change the pigmentation in their hair there. But besides that, you know, <laughs> he looks great. What are the chances of P-22 maybe finding a mate at some point? Would, I mean, would he have to leave Griffith Park considering that clearly he is the only mountain lion anywhere near that area? Does he have to leave or can, is there a chance that some cat might show up and, and be a companion? Yeah. So I think that his best odds of um, finding a female would be if, he left, you know, I think the chances of a female crossing the 405 and doing the same journey he did to enter Griffith Park is pretty low. Um, but if there's one thing I've learned through these cats, you know, the more we follow them, <laughs> they continue to surprise us. But yeah, I think it's a very low chance of him finding a mate. 
All right, so considering that we mentioned that uh, maybe leaving would be the best option for him if he wants to find a mate, I know there were plans for a big wildlife crossing that uh, would allow uh, an animal such as P-22 to travel without crossing dangerous freeways. Uh, What is that going to look like, and what's the latest you've heard about uh, its progress? Yeah, so the wildlife crossing at Liberty Canyon is currently in phase three of four, which is very exciting. Um, It's in the final design and engineering phase, so the blueprint phase right now. They're pretty much at 60% design. And if the fundraising targets continue to get met, as they have been since 2015 when we started talking about this project, you know, construction can begin later this year. And so the National Wildlife Federation, through their Save LA Cougars campaign, is doing the fundraising for this crossing They're really optimistic that the money will continue to be raised and that it's on schedule for fall of 2021. And Jeff, just so people can clearly understand how much of a game changer would this be, not only just for mountain lions, but for all critters uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains area? Yeah, so through our long-term research, we've been studying mountain lions for nearly two decades now. You know, the Santa Monica Mountains, you can think of them as this island of habitat. So, you know, the south is bordered by the ocean, the east the 405 freeway, the north the 101 freeway, and the west by ag fields. Um, at any given time, we can fit roughly 10 to 15 sub-adults and adults. That's only one to two adult males, four to six adult females, and you sprinkle in some sub-adults in there. And that's pretty much what we've seen for, you know, 18 years of our study, that number in the Santa Monica's. And with that, we have also seen inbreeding, which has led to very low genetic diversity of our mount lions. Um, We've had fathers breed with daughters and granddaughters. So we really need to get lions from north of the freeway to cross the 101 south into our mountains and for our lions in the Santa Monica to be able to leave if they choose. And that will help maintain this genetic diversity, not only for mount lions, but for pretty much most other species in the area as well. That's Jeff Sikich, biologist, uh, National Park Services, Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you. A Korean-American family in the 1980s moves from California to Arkansas to build a farm from scratch. Now, that's the plot of the film Minari, which is almost entirely in Korean, but its story is as American as it gets, because the immigrant experience is, it's just not told in English. That story's coming up next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. All right, I'm going to lay this out for you, and then you can decide for yourself. A film released last year is about a Korean-American family that moves from California to Arkansas. The father wants to start a farm. The mother is not thrilled about living in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. And the daughter and son are just trying to adjust to new surroundings and meet some new friends. The film was shot in Oklahoma. The writer-director born in Denver. Plan B Entertainment is on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, and they produced the movie. And A24, which is based in New York, distributed it. The movie is Minari. It's gotten rave reviews, 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and it just won a Golden Globe. But the thing is, it won for Best Foreign Language Film, because even though 
The film is made in America. The majority of the words spoken in Minari are Korean, so it could not compete in any of the two best motion picture categories. Christina Oh is one of the producers of Minari. Christina, welcome to Take Two. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I got a lot to ask you about the Golden Globes, I think. But uh, before all that, before all that, congratulations on on the win. Uh, You know, a lot of praise has been heaped on this film. How did you get your hands on Minari and what grabbed you about the story? Stephen Young, who plays Jacob in the film, we met on a film we did together called Okja several years ago and kind of um, developed a friendship over the years. And we were hanging out one day. He told me about this script and asked if I had read it. I, you know, had to admit to him, I was like, oh, I haven't heard about this. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of like, you know, it's a really interesting piece that delves into sort of some of the background that we've kind of grown up in. And subsequently that same day, Isaac's agents also sent me the script. So that's the director, the director, writer. Yeah, the writer, director, uh, Lee Isaac Chung. So it was like, I got to read this now. Um, And I think post Okja, I was sent a lot of like, Korean material or Asian material, and also at the at that time, there's a lot of talk about immigration stuff. So we mm-hmm. we've been sent a lot of those kind of stories. So I was a little bit, I don't want to say hesitant, but a little bit like, okay, like let me see what this is. And upon reading it, I had never read anything that felt so so like I connected to it on a on a human emotional level, which I hadn't really done with anything before. And so I told my colleagues, Didi Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner at the company, like, hey, I, 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 I came across this script. I'm really connecting to it. And they were like, yeah, if you want to make it, go for it. Yeah. And it is a story that really connects to a lot of people. I mean, just aside from it being a, a you know an immigrant American experience. Um, and I'm thinking, Christina, because it's a common and quintessential touchstone of American life, that immigrant experience. So I want to play an example of that from the film. This is when the children, David and Anne, were socializing with other kids after church who are white. Now, first, Anne is approached by a girl who had a question about the Korean language. Hey, can you stop me if I say something in your language? Um, sure. Chinga chinga chong chima chima choo. Why is your face so flat? It isn't. My name is John. What's yours? David. Nice to meet you, David. Hey, David. Blo, bo, mo, como, romo? Oh. Como. That means I in Korean. That is so neat. I mean, Christina, that that scene right there, I think every immigrant family has a story or two or ten like that. (laughs) Do you know, actually, that's a really interesting that you picked that clip because that's the very scene that Stephen and I talked about before I read the script. He was like, particularly this one scene and the way Isaac kind of creates this environment of talking about something without really like being being overly you know, overly whatever you want to call it about immigration or growing up a kid of immigrants. That's really funny that you picked up on that. I think any kid of immigrants kind of went through that sort of thing. Uh, My parents are very much immigrants from Korea, and I grew up in a sort of rural suburb that had a very, you know, you have those things where kids, kids say stuff and they're not trying to be they're not trying to be mean. They're just trying to understand something that they've never encountered before. And I think it's a it's a you know, it's an interesting 
space to traverse in because especially I think for kids like you know when I was a kid or Isaac and Stephen where we feel very much part of this sort of Americanness, right? We speak English and we speak it fluently, but at home we speak Korean and our parents only speak to us Korean. So it's like we're kind of straddling the hyphen in, in our descriptor, whether it's Korean American, it's like you got one foot on the Korean side and one foot on the American side and just constantly having to navigate that. And I think, uh, you know, that scene in particular really showcases a little bit of what kids of immigrants go through. Now, you know, as I'm watching Minari and I'm seeing the Korean family trying to fit in with their white neighbors in rural Arkansas, I got to admit, uh, Christina, I was I was wondering when the racial violence scene was going to happen. It didn't. It didn't. And I was completely relieved. Uh, How much do you think that factors into why people like the film? Because you know, their story in this film, their struggle is not necessarily based on their race or their identity. I think that's, you know, we purposely built it that way because I think what we really wanted to highlight was the things that everyone, every, a lot of immigrant families have to deal with at home, not just sort of the external factors, but there's a lot also in terms of like keeping a family together and raising kids and trying to succeed in your profession and also trying to attain this idea of the American dream. For us, it kind of was like, we didn't want that sort of external thing to pull away from that sort of emotionality. And also we don't really need to see it in order to really understand what this family's going through and um, wanting to really focus on that aspect of it and not sort of have that be a distraction or a kind of like a, I don't want to say a false point of emotion, because I do think a lot of people did at that time. And even now they are, you know, assaulted and there's crazy stuff happening today, but we did want to focus on this family when we told this story. We're talking to Christina O, oh, producer of Minari. All right, uh, Christina, now to the Golden Globes. So Minari gets nominated in the foreign language film category, even though, as I as I laid out earlier, it was made in America. How did you react when that nomination came down? Look, I think the Globes have their own rules uh, that they, I don't know when they were created, but times are changing. And of course, when we found this out, I, I think it's a complicated thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm an American, so American producers produce the film. Our production company is American. A24 is an American distribution company. Isaac and Steven are American. We shot this in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in America, if you didn't know. Um, as American as it so gets. It's, a bit fast. it's pretty, pretty as American as it gets. Yeah, so I think for us, it was it, it, it's a constant reminder, right, that we are, as I said, kind of straddling that line. We're not, it's like we're constantly reminded that all right, so the film's not in English, even though it's very much feels like an American story to us that, you know, it's it's still foreign. So I think in that aspect, of course, we were a bit disheartened. But at the same time, if we can be part of the conversation to progress the rules or change them or get people to talk about it, it's something that I can be really proud of. Yeah, because, you know, I was I, I thought a lot about this, Christina, and, and the United States does not have an official language. So it's not as if, uh, you know, the, the language in Minari is some unofficial language that is not spoken in the U.S. Millions of Koreans live in the U.S. and speak Korean. So, you know, I get, yeah, it's complicated and it's not exactly, you know, the, the rules aren't exactly maybe updated to 2021. But, you know, when I see this movie get labeled in the way it was, it, it kind of 
help, it makes me connect the dots, I think, a little bit to being labeled as an other. You know, like you're not here, from here. So you're from somewhere else and you're that other. And, you know, you mentioned the violent attacks on Asians in the U.S. I mean, I, it maybe isn't directly linked, but there's got to be some connection. Well, I think that it's, you're kind of touching on it. It's a constant reminder that we're still, there's still yet so much yet to be achieved in terms of equality. And I think, look, if this is, if, if this becomes a tool to highlight some of that, then great. Like, let, let's all talk about it and work towards becoming that melting pot that we are. I want to ask you one last thing, Christina. You've been a producer with Plan B Entertainment for around 10 years. You worked on, you mentioned the film uh, Okja, and also the last uh, Black Man in San Francisco, now Minari. What kinds of film pitches are you getting now, and what kind of stories are you looking to make uh, with movies? The things that get pitched to us range from, like, weird animation things to, you know, huge biopics and, like, even big franchise films. So there really isn't sort of like a... For, for us, there doesn't seem to be a limit, and we're really excited to explore all that stuff. Me personally, I think I like telling stories like Last Black Man and Minari, where it's very much rooted in human emotions, and it's very character-driven. And uh, and that that's, like I think, where my heart lies in terms of storytelling, just really having it center on strong character and voices and being able to also provide sort of a connective tissue to an audience to those emotions. That's Christina O, producer of the film Minari. Christina, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.